Thank you for listening to the Giving Light Podcast. We are a family church and world outreach center. Our heart is to empower you to walk in true freedom and equip you to impact your world. Please visit our website at givinglight.org to learn more about us and our many resources, including original music by Brave Music, e-courses for leaders, tools for raising powerful kids, and more. If you would like to support Giving Light financially, visit our Give Online page to choose the best giving method for you. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy this message. So this morning, I get the honor and privilege of giving the message. So the grown-up message, too. So are you guys excited? The people in this room, the, the four or five people in this room are excited, so I hope you are, too. There we go. I don't know if you can hear them shouting, hooting, and hollering. All right. So, but this morning, I'm going to uh, share a message called The Heart of Generosity. And um, two months ago, about two months ago to the day, um, I shared a message called The Economy of Generosity. And little did I know that would be the last time we all gathered in this room for months and months. So um, the world has changed a lot since then. Um, Some things good, some things bad, but it's changed a lot and it's affected every single one of us. Um, And we've all had to kind of adapt and shift in different ways. But the one thing that is highlighted through all of this is that though the seasons around us change, though everything in our, in our lives change, he remains the same. And I was thinking just this morning, I was driving uh, to get here, and I was worshiping God, and I was singing loud and proud, and I was just shouting, and, and I was just excited feeling the presence of God. And then this car got in front of me that was going 20 miles under the speed limit. And just in this moment, my atmosphere of heaven shifted to an atmosphere of irritation, and I, was, I thought, okay, Jesus, now I have, to, I have to fight to get back to where I was. And you know what? Things happen so fast. Things change in our, our own moods, just moment to moment. But guess what? He's always the same. He always stays the same. And so as long as we stay connected with him, all I had to do was say, okay, God, I just snapped out of it. And I need your help to get me back to where my attention needs to be, which is on you. So that's what we all can do, uh, even though things every day are changing around us. We can always stay connected to him because he's always the same. And guess what? We get to live like he lived on this earth. Jesus was our model and our example for everything. He showed us how to do this. And if you remember the story of when uh, Jesus was in the boat with his disciples and this storm was taking place, um, what did Jesus do? What did he model before us? In the middle of a storm, he did two things. One is he had an enough peace to sleep through that storm. And then number two, he had enough power to stand up and command that storm to still. And so he is our model. That means that we can do the same thing as him. We can have enough peace to sleep through a storm and we can have enough power to stand up and command it to be still. And so Father, right now, God, I just speak to everyone in the sound of my voice. God, and I speak peace and I speak power. Father, I thank you that you are the God that we serve and you modeled before us the way to to navigate a storm and it was through peace and power and it was through connection to you. And so Father, I just declare right now in every home and every heart, I speak peace and I speak power. God, to weather every storm, and God, not to, be, not to come out on the other side tattered and bruised and worn, but to come out on the other side knowing who you are and whose we are. In Jesus' name, amen. So 
If you've heard me speak at all this year, you've probably heard me mention the word generosity because it's the word at the beginning of this year that I felt like the Lord was really stirring, not just in me, but for us as a church family. And I've even heard um, the prophets declare that even over this season that we've been in as a, as a world. And so um, generosity, the two definitions of generosity are, one, it is more than enough. It is abundance. And number two, it is kindness towards others. And so that is the very nature of God. He is generous by nature. It's not a mood. It's not, it's not a feeling. It's not um, uh, just an every now and then thing. It's all the time. Everything that he does is generous because it's actually who he is. And so the scripture that we all know probably, even non-believers uh, know this scripture a lot of times, is John 3.16, which is, For God so loved the world that he, what? that he gave, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so right there in that scripture, it says, so God so loved the world, that is who he is, is love. And so as a God of love, he gave, because he is also a God who is generous in everything that he does. And he didn't just give for that moment. He didn't just give for us to have a temporary life. He gave for us to have life more abundantly, for us to have an eternal, everlasting life. And so as we look at generosity and what that means, we want to remember that it's who he is. Uh, and that means that we're called to also be generous like our Father in heaven is generous. And so Often when we think about generosity, um, we think in, in terms of practical things. We think in terms of money and of food and of clothing and um, the things that we need just to, to do life on this earth. And so when someone is in need, um, we think, well, if I give to them, then, then I'm being generous, right? And God has, has promised us that he will be generous to us in those things. Um, in Matthew 6, uh, the, the scripture talks about, look at the birds of the air. They do, not, uh, they do not sow or reap. They're not working hard, and yet the Father cares for them. And so he says, don't worry about what you wear, what you eat. Don't worry about those things that he knows that we need because uh, our Father in heaven will provide. Just like he provides for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, he says, will I not provide for you all the more, my valuable, precious children, the, the ones that I love above all? I will provide those things for you. And so when we are in moments of lack, and I understand that this pandemic has affected every single one of us, and some of us are, are facing literal physical areas of lack right now. And I just want to declare and prophesy over you right now that the God of abundance would come and manifest himself in your situation because he has promised that he will meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so God, right now, Father, I just prophesy, God, that there will be no lack in your house. There will be no lack in our house. Father, I thank you that the same Jesus who lifted up five loaves and two fish and fed a multitude, God, we call upon that name and we say, Jesus, do it again in our lives. God, that there will be no lack. And so God, we just let every worry and every care fall at your feet because you are a generous God. You're a God who always supplies. So God, we claim that for our lives in Jesus name. Amen. Say amen. All right. So we were made in the image and likeness of God. Did you know that? Right in the very beginning of the Bible, it says, I'm going to create them to look just like me. And so turn to someone. If you're around someone, look them straight in the eye. You see, your face is glorious. Some of you might look a hot mess, but guess what? Your face is still glorious. I call it your morning glory. So 
First John 4, 17 through 19 says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Say, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. So say, because he is, I am. The only way to fulfill that calling, to look like him, is to look at him and to know what he's like and to know who he is. And so the more we look at him, the more we know who he, what he's like, the more we start to become like him, the more we start to act like what he is like. And so we have to stay connected to him all the, all the time, all the, all the time. So um, this is why Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. We have to know who he is and what he's like. Because if we don't, we'll try to take whatever's going on around us, whatever we don't understand, and we'll try to fit our theology to match what we're experiencing because it makes us feel safe. It makes us feel okay to understand what we're going through. So if we can say, oh, God must be like this because this is happening around us, then it makes us feel better inside. But guess what? That's taking our small view of the world, our small view of eternity, and putting it into our perspective, instead of taking what's going on around us and saying, God, what do you see? Because you see far beyond what I see. You are a great big God who knows the beginning from the end. And so we have to look at him no matter what is going on around us. This is a moment-by-moment choice to say, okay, God, I'm going to put this in your hands because I trust that you see things bigger than I see things. And so um, an example of this is like something happens around us, And we start to say things like, well, God must be teaching me a lesson or something I've heard a lot lately. Oh, this is God's judgment towards us. But if you actually know who God is and what he's like, then we won't fit our our surroundings, our circumstances into something that makes sense to us. We'll actually look and say, okay, I know who my God is and I know what he's like. Because guess what? Jesus, in the middle of a storm, he didn't stand up and say, oh, God must be angry. We have to just get through this. What did he do? He said, oh, peace be still. This is not what my God, this is not my God's circumstance. Peace be still right now in this moment. And so when we know who he is, we can speak like him and command the storm still instead of saying, well, this is God's doing. So if you look at John 10, 10, this just kind of confirms that. It says, the thief does not come except to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So question is if it's killing, stealing, or destroying, is it of God? No, it says the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus came that we may have life and have it more abundantly. God's nature is abundant. It's extravagant generosity. So the only way that we can ever walk in a lifestyle of generosity is to know that he is generous. And I keep saying that over and over again. I'm probably going to keep saying it over and over again. Because the way that we see God directly affects our lives and how we live our lives. So we must see him as generous. Otherwise, we will not be able to walk in the abundance that he has promised for us. And when that happens, I'm going to list off some things that happen when we're not convinced that God is generous. This is why it's so, so important. Because when we're not convinced of his generous nature... We will believe that God can't be trusted and that we have to take matters into our own hands. We often respond based on what we understand instead of turning and trusting his perspective. 
We walk in self-protection and take and get instead of living open-handedly, knowing that there will always be enough to go around. We fight for power to keep what is ours for fear of it being taken from us. We store up and hoard in fear instead of in confidence and stewardship. We live like victims, and we believe that everyone is out to get us. I don't know about you, but that's not, none of those are the way I want to live my life. So in, instead, I have to trust and say, God, you are generous. This is who you are, so teach me how to live like you. Now, it's something I, I've talked about quite a bit is that without Jesus, without God, outside of him, we automatically, our default mode is self-protection. It's self-preservation. We want to feel safe. We want to feel in control. We want to feel protected. But did you know that your brain, your physical, literal brain, will respond the same way to an ego threat, to a threat against your um, identity and your worth as it does to a physical threat? So, for example, if you right now came at me with a knife, please don't do this, but if you did come at me with a knife, uh, my body, my brain is going to kick into self-defense, self-protective mode, and automatically... My brain's going to release chemicals into my body, adrenaline, um, cortisol, stress hormones that are going to cause me to protect myself. Now, if you came at me with um, an opinion that I did not like, now how many of you would agree that a knife is going to do more damage than an opinion? Usually that is the case, right? But if you come at me with an opinion that I feel threatened by, my body and my brain will react the exact same way as it would if you were threatening me physically. Automatically, these stress hormones kick in um, through my body and create this self-protective mode. And so why does that matter? Because a lot of times we're faced with opinions and perspectives that we don't agree with and that make us feel threatened in a way. And it creates this automatic response in our bodies and in our brains to protect ourselves. And we do that, sometimes we do that by lashing out, by spewing our own opinions. Sometimes we do that by just shutting down, pretending we don't have an opinion. Sometimes we just walk away and just pretend that nothing ever happened. But it's, it's, a, it's a self-protective mechanism that we do to keep ourselves safe and in control. And so... What happens when my sense of identity, hope, security, power, freedom, worth, ability, etc., is found just in me? What happens is anytime something comes and feels like a threat to that, I'm going to protect myself. But what happens when we're connected to a source who is bigger than us, who sees a greater perspective, who knows the beginning from the end, and we find all of those things, our worth, our identity, our security, our um, sense of control, what if we find that in him? Then that response is automatically different than what our response without him would be. Automatically, we're connected to him, and so I don't have to go through the stress of feeling like I'm out of control or feeling like you're, you're coming at me to, to hurt me. I don't have to go through that because instead I'm able to see from a completely different perspective. It's really powerful, and it actually affects our lives in a very practical um, way every day because, guys, I'm not about emotional stress. I don't know about you. I don't like it. Do I face it all the time? Yes. But if I can avoid it, then I'm going to do that. And one of the, the biggest way to avoid that emotional chaos and stress in our soul is to stay connected to him always, always and always. So believing that our God is generous 
is not believing that just our needs will be met. It's believing that and being firmly convinced that he is the source of every aspect of our life forever. He, be- he becomes the thing, the only thing that truly matters. So why does the Bible tell us to cast our cares on him? This is something I forget every day. All the time we forget this. He says, cast your cares on me. Why? Because when we cast our cares on him, they're, they're swallowed up in his care for us. We're wrapped in something bigger than us. And so he says, cast your cares on me. Why? Because I care for you. My care for you will swallow up. It will completely engulf every care and every worry that you have. But we have to what? Cast our cares on him. He has to always be the biggest thing in our lives. He has to be the one that automatically my response is not, how do I fix it? Automatically, my response is, God, how can we fix this together? You have a solution. How are we going to do this? How do you see things? It completely changes everything, everything about our moment, everything about our lives when we do this. And so when we remain in him, the source of life, we're never victims because we can just say, okay, God, right now I feel this. What do you feel about this? And when that becomes our stance and our automatic response, promise you, everything in your life will shift because you're no longer doing it on your own. Because when you do it on your own, you will run dry. We will run dry if we try to do it without him. But when we stay connected to a source that never runs dry, guess what? We don't run dry either because he's our source. So what is the result when we know that he is a source that never runs dry? When we we know that he is generous. The result is that we get to live generously in this world because as he is, so am I. As he is, so are we in this world, right? So now I get to live as Jesus lived and model the kingdom of God on this earth. That's my right. That's my job. That's my privilege. So what does that mean? We get to give lavishly. Now, I especially love this because I love giving presents. If you're a friend of mine and you want a present, just let me know. It would be my joy to give you a present. I just love this. So we get to give lavishly. And so one thing that I love um, through all that our world has been going through lately, sorry, I have to stay stationary. So one thing that I've loved seeing, and I don't know about you, but I've loved seeing people's generous creativity through all of this. Um, People are giving in ways, guess what, guys? A roll of toilet paper on your doorstep was never a big deal before this. And now people are doing this, and I think, how awesome. I think God smiles every time he sees us creatively give uh, in a new way to someone because that's his heart. His heart is generosity. So I have loved seeing that through all of this, all the chaos and the the things that we're having to deal with. It's also brought out uh, a side of the kingdom that is generous, and I really love that. And I want to be one who partners with what he's doing in this season because um, we get to do that. Right now is a perfect time to exercise uh, his nature of generosity in that way. And so... um, Yeah, a promise that confirms. If you ever think, well, if I give, then there's not going to be enough for me. Uh, If you look at Proverbs 11, 24 through 25, it says, There's one who scatters, yet increases more. There is one who withholds more than is right, and it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will be watered himself. So it's one thing to believe that God will always provide for me, but it's another thing to believe that I might be that provision for someone else. 
which is the kingdom of God. It's not just about me. It's about how do I kick into action? How do I kick into gear the actual economy of the kingdom of God? And it's not like the kingdom of this world. It does not make sense to our natural minds because he says, when you give, there will always be enough for you. So that is one definition of generosity is to give lavishly, give in the things that we have, um, give the practical, the tangible things, give those. Now is our time to especially do that um, and model that not only can the world be generous, but the church should be modeling this first. So, but what is the other definition of generosity? Do any of you remember? I listed them very quickly in the beginning of this message. The other definition of generosity is kindness towards others. So a lot of the time, we think of generosity in those practical ways, but generosity is actually a posture of the heart. Now, if you look at Jesus, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he um, fed multitudes, he turned water into wine, he did all of these things that we see in the natural that are big wow moments. But the things that actually impacted the world, even more than those, was his heart of generosity. Not just his acts of generosity, but his, the posture of his heart was always generous, is always generous. And so one example of that is Zacchaeus. Do you know who Zacchaeus was? There's a song that said he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And so he was a short guy. And so one day Zacchaeus goes up in a tree because he was short and he couldn't see. And so uh, in Luke 19, 5 through 10, it says, When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be a guest of the sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have ever cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. So just like I was sharing in the kids' story, up until this point, we had two groups of people. We had the Jews, the promised children of God, and we had everybody else. And here Zacchaeus was in that everybody else category. And the Jews, did, they, they thought they were unclean. They thought, they're, you know, we're the promised of God, and they are not. And so up until that time, that's how they saw Zacchaeus. So here, Jesus calls down to this man from the tree, and he says, I want to eat at your house. And the Jews said, what is he doing? He's eating in this man's house who is unclean. This goes against everything that we're taught. And what happened? God's heart of generosity saw Zacchaeus for who he really was, not just what he was doing. He called out the gold in him. He says, I want to come and be in the company, be in your company. And what was Zacchaeus' response? Automatically, as a response to God's heart of generosity, Zacchaeus became generous. It wasn't something that Jesus did for Zacchaeus as much as it was something that, that Jesus saw in Zacchaeus. So generosity begins as a heart posture that no matter what we think of a person, he is generous towards them. And when we see a person like he sees a person, the automatic response, it happens almost by default, is that the, the culture and the economy of who he is, of generosity, became the response. He said, I'm not only just going to give back what I stole from people, I'm going to give back four times. That is generosity. It's not just giving enough, it's giving more than enough. 
So it's really powerful. And that's just one example of what Je- how Jesus showed his heart of generosity. He did this. You can look all through um, his life. He did this over and over again. He looked at someone that the world saw one way, that the world saw as unclean and unfit, and he saw who they really were. Uh, he assumed generously. He knew generously about them. And it completely shifted not only their life, but it shifted the world around them. So it is God's heart to look at a person with eyes of generosity Brene Brown says, what is the hypothesis of generosity? What is the most generous assumption you can make about this person's intentions or what this person said? Now, last time I preached uh, back in March, I said that every day that I'm alive, I look either someone in, in, right in front of me or someone on the internet, and I think that person is an idiot. Now, That language was a little bit of a shock factor for some. They were not expecting me to call people idiots. Maybe some of you are better Christians than I am and don't use words like that. But I know sometimes, even though it might not come out of my mouth, I see things happen. And I think, what? Where did they come from? How do they think that way? I do not understand them. Why are they doing that? And I judge a person based upon my first uh, reaction to them. That becomes my assumption towards them is... They're, they're an idiot, whatever word, whatever language you need to use. That becomes how we see a person. If you don't experience this and you see everyone with just the glory of God on them, please let me know. I need you to mentor me because I'm not there yet. Because I would say most of us probably every day, even people that we love, they, do, you ever, do you ever watch somebody that you live with do something and you think, why? Why did you choose to just flood my kitchen Why did you choose to squeeze the toothpaste all over the sink? Why did you do that? Automatically, we have these judgments towards one another. That may or may not be a pet peeve of mine is toothpaste in the sink. I will just leave that up to your your idea there. But we all have those thoughts towards people. And guess what? We're all different people. God created us to be thinking, feeling, choosing people. And I'm grateful for that because I, am a, I, I like to have my own thoughts. I like to have my own opinions. I like to know my own feelings. But um, I don't know how your family was, but I grew up in a, a house of seven people. And just going to, out to pick an ice cream flavor became a war because seven people could not agree on what kind of ice cream we needed to buy for the house. And we could not buy seven cartons of ice cream. So if my family, my little family of seven people could go to war over an ice cream flavor, do we think that the 7 billion people on this planet are going to agree on everything? No, they are not. And so a lot of times when we assume something of someone, we're assuming based upon what we think and our ideas and our experiences of something and not considering that they have just as much of a valid point and opinion as I do. So Why do we have to have it in mind that God has a heart of generosity? Because it goes against everything we want to do. We want to snap judge someone. We want to make those assumptions about them. We want to consider our our way the only way and the best way. But that wasn't how he saw people. That's not how he sees people. Jesus gave his life for us while we were yet sinners. So how many of you are excluded from that? You've never sinned. None of us. We've all sinned, and God gave his life. He gave abundantly, generously gave his life for all of us to have everlasting life, even when we were sinners. So with that, I ask, is the heart of generosity selective? 
people in this room? It's the heart of Generosity Selective. No. All right. I need some feedback, even if it's a tiny bit. All right. So we're going to see here. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, say, even when I was dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved and raised up together. And made, he made us to sit together with him in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. So there are two things I want to point out in this passage. Again, it's Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. One is that while we were dead in sin, he saved us. It was because of his generosity of grace that we weren't just spared from hell. We were seated with him in heavenly places. That means, and this is a a big hard thing to say, but that means that every time that I have a thought that is not from the vantage point of someone who is seated with him in heavenly places, that I've forgotten the generosity of the God who put me there. So I get to see things from a a higher vantage point because he seated me there because of grace. Because of his heart of generosity towards me, I am no longer, I no longer have the perspective of this world. I am seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's not just in heaven, that's now. That's right now, I get to share in the perspective of heaven. So we always have to remember this, that that is our access. Our access is his perspective. We just have to tap into that access. And so uh, the second thing I want to point out in this passage is that here in Ephesians, Paul is talking to a Greek church. Now, again, there's two groups of people in this time. There's the Jews, the promise of God, and there's the Gentiles, which is everybody else. And so um, here Paul is teaching to a Gentile church who, who came to Jesus. And so in the Jews' mind, these are still unclean people. Um, up until right now, this is getting worked out in their minds. And so Paul is teaching this to a Greek church who up until now um, believed or thought that they were discounted from the promise of God. So here, Paul is saying to a Gentile church, if it weren't for the generosity of God's mercy and grace towards you, you were a mess and you were doomed. Okay, so say this. They were a mess and they were doomed. Okay, this is the Gentiles. So just put a pin in that. Just remember that. Hold that in your brain. The Gentiles were a mess and they were doomed. So now... The Gentiles lived however they wanted. That's just the lifestyle that they lived. That's the way they, that their culture was. Um, the Jews, on the other hand, were raised in a very different way. They were raised to believe or to follow the law, to follow the law of Moses. And it were very strict laws. Remember, they couldn't have bacon. It's a rough time. So they, but that's the way they grew up. That's the way they believed. They believed that their holiness and their righteousness was found in their good works and following the law. And so in Romans 9... Paul is talking about the Jews, and Paul was a Jew, and so he's talking about his people, and he says, you are the promise, the Jews are the promised people uh, of God. They're the, they're the children of Israel. They're Abraham's sons and daughters, and he's talking about how much he loves them because he's a Jew. These are his family. These are his fellow, fellow countrymen, and he says, um, I love you so. I love the Jews so much, and my heart is so grieved towards the Jews. He says, "If I could be accursed, that they could be saved, I would do it. If I could put myself in that position to take the price for them, then I would do it, because he loved them that much." But he says his heart is grieved because they got stuck in the law instead of opening their eyes to Jesus. They got stuck believing that the Gentiles were discluded, and so. 
Here um, in Romans 9.32, it says, And why was that? Because they did not pursue the path of faith, but instead on, but insisted on pursuing righteousness by works, as if it could be seized another way. They were offended by the means of obtaining it and stumbled over the stumbling stone. So how many times do we get offended by our different ways of doing things, our different methodologies? Even if it's not this big, huge offense, we judge someone based upon how we would do it instead of how he would do it, or instead of asking questions about why they do things the way that they do. And so here the Jews, the promised children of God, that was their identity in him. But they got distracted and they got offended by the methodology. The Bible says they stumbled over that stumbling stone. And so um, here it's saying, they, it's right here in front of you. It's right here in front of the Jews. And still they missed it because they got stuck in their, in their own way of doing things. And so say the Jews, say the Jews were a mess and they were doomed. So here we've got both sides, the Jews and the Gentiles. They're both a mess. They're both in sin. And they're both doomed to, to hell without Jesus, without him, without Jesus. So Jesus became that ultimate uniter, the great uniter between the sides. He came not just for Jews, not just for Greeks, not just for Gentiles. He came for the whole world. So in Romans 10, 11 through 13, it says, For the scriptures say, whoever believes, say whoever believes, On him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever, say whoever, calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now verse 12 in the Passion Translation, I love this language. It says, so then faith eliminates the distinction between Jew and non-Jew, for he is the same Lord Jehovah for all people, and he has enough treasures to lavish generously upon all who call on him. So what does this tell us? God's generosity is not partisan. It's not for one group and not for another group. It is for everyone. God so loved the whole world that he gave not just a little piece of the world. He loved the whole world that he gave his son to unite us into one family. So if that's the case, then we cannot, as believers, as followers of Jesus, as ones who are supposed to model him on this earth, we can't get stuck in methodology. We can't get stuck in parties. We cannot get stuck in groups or judgments. Why? Because he loved the whole world and his heart of generosity is for every single one of us. So we need to be able to reach across any aisle, whether this is politically, whatever separation there might be, we need to be able to reach across that, even if we don't understand and say, God, you are generous to all. Your heart is for all of us. And so whether it's just saying, God, I need you to help me love this person, or whether it's asking questions and reaching across to that person and modeling the way that God might do this, um, we have to walk in those ways. And this is something that we have to practice all the time. This is not something oh, that's going to happen overnight. It's not just a, a switch that can be flipped. Um, it's, a, it's something we have to put into practice to model the generosity of God, the generosity of the kingdom. And um, something that I love about Paul, and I believe this is a big reason why he was a great candidate to write a good portion of the New Testament to champion the gospel all over uh, the known world, was that he was a Jew by birth. So he loved the Jews. We can read that again in Romans 9. He's talking about how much he loves his people because he was a Jew, and he also understood the Jewish law. 
Um, but he was raised in a Greek culture, and he also understood the culture of the Gentiles, the culture of the Greek way of doing things. Uh, he spoke the languages of both the Jews and the Gentiles. And how often are we raised in one culture, and that's just the way it is in our minds? But Paul, he had the, the awesome privilege of knowing both worlds. So one thing that I think that, that made Paul a great candidate was because he was able to love both sides. He loved the Jews and he loved the Gentiles. And I believe that God could say, okay, if I can trust you to love both sides when they see completely differently from one another, then you're going to be the, a great one who can model what my kingdom is like on this earth. So, all right. So we can't influence what we don't love so again, God so loved the whole world that he came and he broke down party lines and he gave his life for every single one of us. He modeled a generosity that isn't afraid of losing because he was always connected to the source and he only did what he saw the Father doing. And so I'm not saying we should be peaceful pacifists who sit down and do nothing and just float on love clouds all day and just pretend nothing bothers us and pretend that Everybody can have every world peace. Everybody can have their own opinions, their own ideas, and that's just fine and dandy. I guess something else about Paul is that he knew his rights. He was a Roman citizen, and he knew his rights as a Roman citizen. And so when he needed to, he called, uh, he exercised his rights as a Roman citizen. So we still need to take that place of power uh, in knowing our identity as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And also um, there's an element of citizenship in our, in our natural world because we are here on earth right now of knowing our place, knowing our position of our citizenship and what that means. And so I'm not just saying that we should just, again, sit on, float on love clouds all day. We need to step up and exercise our rights. But it's always, 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 always has to stay connected to his heart of generosity all the time. And so um, I love this quote. It's a little bit of a twist, excuse me, on a quote from Bill Johnson. But it, um, I've just been saying this over and over and over again to God. I've, um, the, the, the saying is, I cannot afford to have a thought in my mind that is not in his. And so it's just something God's been convicting me with over and over. Um, because right now, I don't know if you've noticed, but things are a little crazy in the world. And it can be really, really, really easy for me to look, just open something and see somebody's opinion, see what's happening. <clears throat> Sorry, a lot of talking today. And to have my own ideas about it. But guess what? I can't afford to have a thought in my head that, that it isn't in his. And so over and over again, I've been repenting so much, been repenting so much because I quickly have these ideas and God comes in and in his great kindness. You know, every time he convicts us, it's a kindness to us. And it's a kindness for me to say, God, forgive me for allowing a thought in my head that's not in yours and allow me to see things like you see. That's, that is repentance right there. It's saying, God, change my mind to see things like you see so I can live like you want me to live on this earth. So, um, because we get to represent him well on this earth, and I want to do that. And we, right now, we have a prime opportunity. Every day, we have an opportunity. But right now, in the moment of a storm, in the moment of chaos, we get to show this world what Jesus' peace and power in the middle of it looks like. So, I have to work very vigilantly not to let my opinions, thoughts, or perspectives, or emotions be what leads me. Guess what? He made us powerful thinkers, feelers, and choosers. He made us with the ability to have our own opinions and make up our own mind. I love that because I have strong opinions, and I like to keep them. But guess what? It has to always stay in a context of, God, when you have an opinion, you change mine. 
When you have an opinion about something, I subject my opinion and my thoughts and my emotions to yours because you are the greater one. It is your heart of generosity that even allows me to be to have those opinions in the first place. I have to stay connected to him all the time. He has to remain on the throne of my heart always. So his thoughts get to outrank my thoughts. His opinions of a person, party, or system get to change my perspective and worldview. Why? Because I belong first to a, and foremost to a kingdom of God, and that's his kingdom. And his kingdom is neither Jew or Greek. And I would say it's neither Republican or Democrat either. It doesn't have a party or a side. It is simply his kingdom. And that's the kingdom that we're under. So, um, yes, I'm saying stand up for your convictions. Have them. Have convictions. He made you to have them. Have your beliefs. Um, Be strong in them. Know what you believe. But never outside of the, the kingdom of God. Never outside of him and never without him. Because if we do it on our own outside of him, we will run dry. We will run out. It will exhaust us. But when we stay connected to the source that will never run dry, that means um, that he just gets to shift and tweak those things so that we get to represent him and his kingdom well. So his commands, his big, big commands, he says, what's greater than all the rest? Love him first and love our neighbor as ourselves. And that extends beyond just our neighbors that we like and just our neighbors that we agree with. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And the only way we can do that is to know his heart, to know what he's like, to know how he wants us to respond in a situation. It's a moment-by-moment practice of saying, God, I put you first. I put you most. How do you want me to respond in this situation? So um, side tangent just came to me. I just saw a thing by Dr. Carolyn Leaf. She said the emotions of a situation um, have power in your, they, they will come and they'll hit you for 90 seconds. And after that, after that emotion floods your body, it's then our choice as to what we're going to do with it. So I've been doing this. When I have a strong opinion or I want to say something really quick, I say, okay, 90 seconds. He created our bodies to work with, with all of this. We're not powerless. He created us powerful to do this. So I say, okay, 90 seconds. I'm going to let the emotions pass. I'm going to, in those 90 seconds, say, Holy Spirit, come. And then I'm going to respond accordingly. So there's just a really practical tip for you. Give it 90 seconds. Let those emotions flood. And a lot of the times, I don't know about you, for you, but for me, in that 90-second time, a lot changes. So work. Allow your body to work with you. Allow your, your heart and your body to work together because he has created us with the abilities to partner with our design, with the design that he's given us to actually do this in a practical way. And so speaking of, I always have to give you practical. So how can we practice this? How can we practice this big idea of allowing the heart of generosity to become our heart? One of the ways is to be humble, teachable, and kind. Second Chronicles 7.14 um, says, If my people who are called by my name. Now, I just read this yesterday. I read it in a different way because uh, I noticed the punctuation. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, comma, and pray and seek my face, comma, and turn from their wicked ways, comma, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. The first step there was humble ourselves. So I always read humble ourselves and pray together. But it's actually, um, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, That's the first step. And so what is it to be humble? It's to make him first. It's to become lower than him. And so the first step to being humble is to know that he is God and I am not, and that he sees far beyond what I see, and that he knows the answer and every solution comes from him. So again, I cannot afford to have a thought in my mind that is not in his. 
So one of the ways that we can do this practically is to set our thoughts and our opinions on him. And so again, in that 90-second time, to say, okay, God, change my mind. We, that's all we can do. It's just a practical thing. Say, okay, Holy Spirit, change my mind. Take over right now. I put you on the throne of my heart. I put you on the throne of my emotions, on the throne of my thoughts, on the throne of my opinions. Um, and it's going to change a lot. It's been changing my world. Um, and it's an everyday practice. I'm, I get it wrong all the time. Um, but it's something that I'm learning to practice and something that we all can learn to practice. A quote by Eugene Cho uh, is, Be humble. The world is bigger than your view of the world. And certainly, God is much bigger than your view of God. I love that. Be humble. The world is bigger than your view of the world. And certainly, God is much bigger than your view of God. So another practical way that we can propagate this kingdom of generosity on the, on the earth is to not spread a gospel that isn't his. So that means before we speak, before we post, before we otherwise communicate, we ask God what his perspective is first. Again, this does not mean silence. This doesn't mean you don't ever get to speak up. It means that he gets to be the Lord of what we say, of what we communicate. He gets to be the perspective that we see through first. And so a good rule of thumb is before we say something is to pause and say, is what I'm about to say or do a demonstration of God's heart or is it just something that I'm feeling or I'm wanting to say? Guys, again, I have strong opinions. I'm getting this wrong all the time, especially right now, because I want to say what I think. But guess what? It's, it's learning every day how to practice doing this with him. God, what do you think above what I think? And how am I representing you to the world in what I'm communicating? And lastly, a, another way to practice this heart of generosity is to assume generously. Um, Idra Nuyi, if I'm saying that right, she's the former CEO of Pepsi. She said, whatever anybody says or does, assume positive intent. You will be amazed at how differently, how you will be amazed at how your whole approach to a person or a problem becomes very different. So again, it says, whatever anybody says or does, assume positive intent. That's assuming the best of a person, which is not always easy to do when we see the effects of those things. You will be amazed at how your whole approach to a person or problem becomes very different. So when we assume generously towards people, it allows us to go from a place of self-preservation, protection, and fear to an open hand, heart, and mind so that we can love them, value them, and see the gold in them. That's the heart of God. And so a good question, which I learned from Brene Brown, is what if they're doing the best that they can? This is a powerful question to ask ourselves always when we see something and we think they're messing up the world or they're messing up my world. Say, what if they're doing the best that they can? What if they're doing the best that they know how? And not make it my job to educate them on the actual best way, but just asking, okay, what, what is the motive of their heart? What was the intent of their heart? Were they actually doing it to attack me or to attack what I believe or my convictions or my opinions? Or were they doing the best that they can according to their opinions, convictions, beliefs, experiences? So it's a really simple question, but it really does a lot to change how we see the world, how we see those around us, is to ask, what if they're doing the best that they can? And then with that, start to actively assume the best of them. So when your, your brain, our minds automatically want to write stories. We do it all the time. I can't go into that right now, but it's something powerful to know is that 
When we see information, when we, when we take in any information through our five senses, that information goes through the grid of our own experiences, thoughts, memories, um, ideas, all of those things. It goes through our grid. So um, why was I saying that? I don't know, but it's true. Oh, we write stories. So when that information goes in, it runs through our own grid, and we tell stories. So we start to make up ideas about why a person did what they did. Oh, they left toothpaste in the sink because they're trying to get back at me for when I did this. We do this all the time. We write stories. And so what if instead we took power over that storyteller, and we said, all right, what is the best possible assumption I could have about this person or this situation right now? And we begin to actually change the whole narrative of what could be happening. And it's a really, really powerful thing because it's not only going to save us a lot of emotional stress, it's going to begin to reframe that grid in our mind. So when information comes in, we're automatically training ourselves to say, okay, I see through a grid of generosity because my God sees through a grid of generosity. And so... Again, practically, what if they're doing the best that they can? And then assume that they are doing the best that they can. It'll completely change how we see uh, everything. So, and all we have to do is say, Jesus, Holy Spirit, just convict me when I'm doing it wrong. Just say that, and he will start to do it. And then it's like we have the best helper, the best teacher with us all the time. We don't have to do this on our own because we can't do it on our own. But he's with us all the time. And we can just say, Holy Spirit, help me. Help me to do this. Or Holy Spirit, I just did that wrong. I just assumed that that person was the scum of the earth. Help me to see them like you see. Okay? It happens. It's just the simple things that we can do. Always inviting him in. Always keeping him first and most in our hearts and in our attitudes towards this world. So with that, I just want to pray for us. Father, I thank you, God, that you love each one of these people in the sound of my voice. God, that you love them big time. God, that you smile over them and that your assumption toward us, your reality towards us is always great. It's always generous. It's always the very best. God, and you always pull out the gold in us. And God, I thank you that you love this nation and you love this world more than all of us combined. And so, Father, I thank you that we put our trust in you. We put our faith in you. God, not just on us to be the solutions, not just on us to, um, to preach the gospel that we believe is true, but God, to propagate and to preach a gospel that belongs to you, that is greater than what we think, greater than what we know, greater than what we understand. And so God, I thank you, God, that you are the Lord of our lives today and always, God, and we keep you first and most in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.